This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter, and he's back. Brent Edwards once more on the hot seat after sitting at the pool bar ordering martini cocktails by the bucket load. But I digress. Because meanwhile, the PM, who remember was the police minister, has suddenly come to a realisation. Kiwis have had a guts full of people thinking the rules don't apply to them. And he said, I've had a guts full as well for announcing a new crime policy. Basically, aiming for those supporting youth to commit a crime. Yes, that's right. Very close to the Nats policy. Brent, the PM said, this is just a progression of what they've been working on for such a long time already. Yeah, well, it shook me, but it didn't stir me. Um, <laughs> it was good, eh? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it was clearly panicked. I mean, and in the, Panic it, policy. Yeah, and we're going to get into this awful thing of running into the election campaign about, I'm tougher on crime than you are. And, you know, that it's, it's just tit for tat. Um, and but I mean but from the government's perspective, from Labor's perspective, it's a very late in the piece election looming, so it looks pretty cynical. Well, it looks very cynical because then not only that, when the prime minister spoke in the morning, he had to clarify policy a few hours later after admitting he was only human and misspoke. Yeah, well, well, the, the, what he spoke to at his post cabinet news conference on the Monday afternoon was talking about a new offence for those adults who encourage or incite young people under eighteen to commit these crimes. And then what they had to clarify later was, oh, no, it's not a new offence. They're going to make it an aggravating factor in the um, in sentencing. And, I mean, obviously, the, I mean, the Cabinet had discussed all of this, so um, how it For came minutes, out, probably. Well, yeah, and <laughs> it came out of Cabinet somehow, got interpreted wrongly in the press statement and then in the written notes that the Prime Minister had. He didn't pick it up until, I think it was an hour or so later, they then put out their correction. So, again... Didn't look great, and then of course later in the week they had then this, another announcement. Well, it was you know there were three announcements, yeah, and where Calvin Davis, the minister of children, didn't really seem to know about. Well, no, yes, that's the new youth facility. That one with Calvin Davis not able to answer hardly any questions about it, who might or might not be in it, how much it will cost. He looked, and I use this word kindly, befuddled, or a possum in the headlights, going like this. Uh, 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 uh. And then he said those words that he says all the time, like I said, like I said, like I said, because that's all he says. And then admitting no business case had ever been undertaken. Which again is, I think, a reflection of the rush nature. They're making of, this up as they go along. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Um, yeah, they are. And then, then of course, I mean, then they've um, made an, another announcement the day after where they, they were more assured, but again, looking at putting 12 and 13-year-olds in front of the youth court. I mean... Trying to look well, tough, well, but of yeah, course but then also being criticised by criminologists and others who say, well, hold it, there's no evidence that this works. Yeah, but also uh, they only go to the court if it's if, if it's their first offence, they don't. Yeah. So all they've got to say, ah, oh, yeah, I haven't done it before, and then they, they, they go scot-free again. Uh, yeah, but I mean, most of the experts tell us a lot of this stuff doesn't. You know, look, it, it makes politicians look good. We're getting tough, we're going to be tough, we're going to put these people away, and that. And some victims feel how many years, helpful by that. How many years have they had to sort this out, Labor? 
Well, a number of years, but how well, many well, years? Well, when you say a number, how many? Well, they've been in, well, well, they've been in government since 2017. Yes, I'm making a and, point here. And b- b- before that, though, this is not a new... Ram raids are a relatively new phenomenon, but the problem of youth crime is not new. The problem of crime is not new. It's well, they do around, it because, A, yeah. they can get away with it, and B, because yeah. they can get away with it. Yeah, I know, but we know contemporaries of ours when we were young, Grant, who did get treated quite tough the tough system that they had, went to Borstal. Do you remember Borstal? Well, I do, and I remember once and I slightly got into trouble, I got a clip around the ear from a cop. Yeah. Okay, but when those young people went to <laughs> Borstal, I know the one thing we always wanted to know was when they were going to get out because we knew that when they came back from Borstal, they'd come back three times as tough and three times as nasty. Yep. So, you know, the evidence doesn't suggest a lot of that stuff works, but the politicians will beat one another up, and I use that word Well, they've advisedly. done it before here beat one another up to say and show who is toughest. And here's what the PM said. He said, we have been failing as a country, talking about, you know, the ram raids and the youth crime lap. So he means you. Well, it, it is he actually... He says you and me. Yeah, I haven't failed. Well, look, Does that nothing to do with me? Well, it, it is a broader societal issue about, I mean, I mean, specifically it may not be having anything to, to, well, to do... What does he mean when he says we? Because as a society, we've got these um, young people going off the rails, and, and some of the issues are related to things like, you know, uh, poverty, um, you know, lack of opportunity. Well, that's um, not my fault. And, and I, I suspect, too, one of the things that is driving a bit of this is that Coming out of COVID, I, I think among probably the whole population, but reflected perhaps, you know, particularly for young people, is this a greater sense of anxiety that's, I think, leading to slightly more antisocial behaviour than we might have seen previously. But um, that's, well, if you don't deal with the causes of this crime, you'll never, you'll never actually deal with it. And as I say, a lot of the experts tell us that just getting tough doesn't work. You're, sound, wanna, you're sounding like Calvin oh, Davis. Well, you start by saying, as well, I say. Well, look at look at being tough on crime and, and long, long prison sentences. A country you can look at is the United States of America. Has that is that pulling back their crime rate? Look at how many multiple I shootings that they're having. I don't know. Well, come I mean... I don't know. You're going to bring this up. I would have well, looked it up. Is the, <laughs> well, is the drop in inflation going to help Labor? Because um, things don't feel cheaper. No, it's not going to help. I mean, it, it's it's good. Because I mean, it's, it's not really a drop; it's just a reduction in the rise. Well, it's yeah. Well, I mean, well, we're always generally having price. And that doesn't increase. include home loan rates or the yeah, fuel. That's yeah. not even in those figures yet. Look, so it's down at six percent from it. You know, remember the peak at the end of last year was seven point three percent, and I suspect by the time the next figures come out, which I think will be just after the election, it'll probably be down to about five. But for most people they won't really be noticing much easing on their household Right, bill so the answer is no, it's not going to help Labor. It, no, it's not going to help Labor. What about I mean, the women's football but, but, but cup? Will that way, help? Would be better, it's better that it's come down than it stayed to say, you know, so... Yeah, but not a lot of difference. Is the, will the Women's Football World Cup help Labor? Only if the football ferns win. So that's a no. Right. Speaking of befuddled, <laughs> as we were talking before, the PM must surely be delighted with the UK and the CPTPP. Except he isn't, because once again, the headline stolen by a report on Michael Wood that put him fairly and squarely in the sights of the uh, Labour-centric Privileges Committee. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, there's that complaint made by National MP Chris Pink, was taken up by the Registrar of the Pecuniary Interests, Sir Martin Weavers, and he's written a pretty damning report, actually, about Pretty Michael. damning or damning damning? Well, yeah, damning damning, very damning. Um, Bloody damning. <laughs> and... Obviously, suggested they refer it to the Privileges Committee. I mean, when and on the 
face of it, when you look at it, you think, how can the Privileges Committee not find Michael I can Wood tell you how, contempt? because there's a lot of Labour people on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It'll be it will be really interesting because there are multiple times when he had the opportunity to clarify his pecuniary interests in that declaration that mm. the MPs have to make every year, yep. and they're required to immediately um, correct it if they yep. realise they've made a mistake. Yep. He didn't do no. that over year after yep. year after year after year. Yep. So. Um, Look, Martin Weavers is a very, very well-respected public servant. Um, you know, so for him to put a report out like that, um, yeah, it's not—it's not a good look for Michael Wood. And from and the government, from Labor's, headlines from Labor's perspective, it's going to obviously drag out over the next few weeks. Yep. Then we'll get the result. And if, as you say, if, if as you suggest, the committee doesn't find... I didn't suggest content, anything. I just pointed out some facts. Then, actually, that might blow the story up even more, to be honest. Right, speaking of other stories, what do we make? What do we make of the ACT Party list, Brent? Andrew Hoggart looks a shoo-in. Yeah, do yeah. We, do we getting rid of his farming clothes and his gummies and well, putting think, him on a suit? Yeah, and um, Pumjit Palmer as well. I mean, they didn't attract those people into the party to put them way down the list where they had no chance of getting in. And interestingly, one ACT MP, Chris Bailey, I think he's at number 17. So, you know, unless ACT gets a really good vote, he's probably out out the door. But you know what? They're still a solid unit, aren't they? There's yeah, no moaning, yeah, no backstabbing. Yeah, no, they, they still are a solid unit. I mean, I think, you know, David Seymour's run a really good team from that perspective mm. um, all through the... You know, and I mean, there's some simple things, actually. I mean, if you go up to ACT's office, they've got an open plan office, so they don't hive off into their little, you know, and sort of, there's, it's an open plan office, it's very Silos. open. And so it's, you know, he, I know um, David Seymour talked to a number of business leaders about the culture they developed, and he used that to try and uh, drive the culture within that. And it, and it was interesting, because until this last election, of course, he was on his own, so... Now people, speaking of people who've done good things, a bouquet here for Shane Retty because he's actually been on 19 night shifts around the country to check out uh, ED and after our um, medical facilities, hospital facilities. With, yes, unsurprising results, they're all stuffed. Um, but that's an amazing thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, no, well, it is. I think, um, other, to be fair, I think other, you know, opposition health spokespeople and, and, and others, you know, like police spokespeople and that will offer often go out with the police, that sort of thing. So not 19 times all around well, the country. Yeah, I'm not sure if anyone's done it 19 times, but, yeah, but good on them because, obviously, you go down, you talk to the people on the ground, you actually see yeah. what's happening on the ground, and it, and it gives MPs a very good grounding about, you know, and, I mean, obviously, his background as a doctor, it's not like he, right. wouldn't, he wouldn't know what's going no, on. that's right. That's good. Now, meanwhile, the Nats have said, hey, we're in it for you. Oh, hang on. Sorry, let me rephrase. We'll fix it for you. Potholes, that is. <laughs> so instead of a speed bump after speed bump and Waka Kotahi's plan to get us all moving by slowing us all down, the Nats are going to fill those nasty potholes using half a billion of reprioritised money. Actually, but I've got a theory. They're leaving those potholes purposely to slow us down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, in the end, I'm not quite sure how much more money will be spent on potholes to what already is being spent on potholes. But obviously, it's again another issue that, that National has picked on to sort of, I guess, um, it seems to be perhaps a, a thing in the public's mind that they're, you know, bumping through potholes. I don't know how many times Luxon, you've... Luxon is, he's done really well. This. He's picked an issue that we're all upset about, those potholes. The potholes blowing the tyres. Blowing yeah, the tyres. Yeah. I, mean, I can't say it's yeah. been an issue that's been up in conversation I've had. Well, that's because you take public transport. You don't even hop on a car anymore. Right, yeah, rail. There are no potholes in the rail. No potholes right. there. Right. Now, they, <laughs> the House is sitting again next week. And apart from football... 
We've got an important, important visit. Yeah, well, um, at least one. Yeah, at least one. Um, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will be here in the, in the middle of the week. Um, next week. And that, that was after they held the Australia New Zealand Leadership Forum this yep. week, which was business leaders plus also some political politicians there as well. So, yeah, he's coming over. I mean, and part of it is part of the, um, you know, celebrating the 40th anniversary of CER and what have you. So, um, you know, just another good opportunity for. Chris Hipkins to, to talk to the Albanese. It may be the last time they talk as Prime Ministers. Oh, Who knows? That's terrible. That is beehive banter. As both Labour and the Nats vie for that central vote again. But big differences, of course, in the minor parties. What policies will come out in the next week? One thing is for sure. We won't be short of things to talk about. And speaking of short things, Brent, thanks for coming in again. Nice to, nice to have you in here. Thank you so much for watching or listening. We really appreciate it. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Inflation has fallen to 6% in the June quarter. With us is Westpac senior economist Satish Ranshot. So, Satish, tracking in the right direction. Well, inflation has come off the highs that we saw last year, but I think under the surface some of those details are quite worrying. Interest rates have been rising for over 18 months now, and those underlying pressures, particularly in the domestic economy, they're still running hot. I think it's going to be quite a while before inflation is back at target. What is still under pressure? What we're seeing is an economy that is still in pretty good shape. The level of demand is firm, the labour market is pretty stretched, and that's resulting in some widespread price and wage pressures. That's being reflected in a solid underlying pulse of price rises, and I think conditions are set for those pressures to continue into the new year. Okay, looking at this data, food was the biggest driver. Food prices were up a solid amount this quarter, and they are up by an eye-watering 12% over the past year. Now, some of that will just be a temporary story. We've had some big disruptions, especially the storms at the start of the year. They'll ease off over time, but for now, households, especially those on lower incomes, are going to be facing quite a squeeze when they go to do the weekly grocery shop. When you're looking at the pressures, are you hinting at possible further OCR hikes? I think the Reserve Bank is going to be looking at a pretty long road back to its target. And against that backdrop, we do see the risk that the RBNZ might have to raise the official cash rate one more time. We're still looking at quite a persistent domestic inflation pulse. We've got a strong labour market. And we're now out of the world that we were in in the early stages of the pandemic when we were wrestling with supply disruptions. What we're dealing with now is a strong demand environment the Reserve Bank really needs to see the economy cooling to get those pressures back in the band. So it's going to be a lot harder to get back into that band and take a lot longer? The longer inflation remains high, the harder it's going to be for the Reserve Bank to get inflation down. We hear every day about more and more workers wanting cost of living adjustments, and to the extent that that's going to be reflected in prices for services, that could be reflected in a higher inflation rate for longer than the Reserve Bank is hoping for. Mm. And that tradable, non-tradable, still persistently high? Tradables and non-tradables are both still quite high. If we strip out those volatile fuel prices, tradables is actually pushing higher. And non-tradables, that key domestic price series the Reserve Bank follows, it really hasn't moderated very much, even though we've had some big increases in interest rates over the past year. What are the open borders and migration doing for inflation then? 
What we're seeing are some mixed effects on that front. With more workers coming into the country, businesses are finding it easier to source staff. That'll help moderate some of that pressure on wages. But of course, more people in the country is adding to demand. And much of that will show up in areas like the demand for housing and rentals, but also spending more generally. Overall, I think it's probably a bit of a mixed picture for the inflation impact, but I still think that we will see some ongoing pressures in the near term. What areas and categories will be under pressure the most, do you think? I think anything with a strong labour component is likely to see some continued large increases. So that's things like hospitality and dining out, but a whole range of services that require labour are probably facing some pressures. And that accounts for a very significant part of the domestic inflation story. It's where the Reserve Bank really puts a lot of its focus. Have food prices peaked? I think we're likely to see food price inflation easing off over the coming year. But the big issue we've been wrestling with has been those disruptive weather patterns. That's always hard to predict. I think it would be great if we could see some cheaper grocery prices and prices for fresh produce, but it will be dependent on the weather gods. What about construction and rents? I think this is the big area to watch. Rental price inflation has been tracking at a high rate. It's the biggest single component of inflation. And I think with population growth picking up, that pressure is going to persist. The other big component of domestic prices is construction, as you mentioned. That's off the really rapid paces that we saw in the early stages of the pandemic. Those earlier increases were related to supply disruptions. Now we're seeing a more modest pulse. It's come down as demand in the construction sector slowed. That is likely to ease off a bit more going forward, but it hasn't come down as much as we might have expected. And inflation likely to be a political hot potato as we get into the election campaign. Those cost of living pressures are at the heart of a lot of the challenges we're facing as a country. And I think all political parties, certainly all households, will be keeping a very close eye on how it's tracking. It's a particularly big issue for those households on lower incomes since we've seen big increases in the prices of necessities. And fuel's gone up recently as well as the tanks has gone back on. We have seen that pick up in fuel prices, and that's going to be a worry for a lot of families. Often when we see that increase in fuel prices or other necessities, they have to cut back in other areas. That can be especially tough. All right, Satish Ranshot, thanks for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. NBR columnist Bridget Morton believes the robo-debt scandal in Australia might have ramifications for the public service in this country. She joins me now. Let's start first in just a a brief explanation about what robo-debt is. A Hollywood movie or...? Um, Not quite as exciting, but had a massive impact on Australia. Robo-debt was a scheme basically put in by the last government that um, for basically our equivalent of MSD tried to recover by sort of computer-generated information the welfare debts, basically overpayments. The problem was that there was a lot of issues with the system and what it eventuated was that a lot of people made payments back that they didn't need to. A lot of people were really seriously affected by the sort of harassing calls from the robot, basically. Um, And additionally, there was a huge amount of money that they got back that they didn't even need to pay back. And... It seems that some of it then came down to the fact that the advice the government got from public servants was 
just straight out wrong? Yeah, so there's been a Royal Commission, there's been a new government, the Labour government came in, it was a big election issue, so they promised a Royal Commission. That report was handed down this last week. One of the key things about it, or key findings in it, was that there was a number of high-level public servants that gave misleading or incorrect advice to their Cabinet and to their Ombudsman. And what drove them to do that? Well, that's a good kind of question. So there's one chapter in the Royal Commission's report that has been not yet released because it has a whole lot of referrals um, of those public servants to a number of sort of, let's call them accountability bodies. And I think, you know, there's a lot of questions about what drove them to that. There was a very strong mandate from the ministers from Cabinet that this is something that had to be done and had to be implemented. So there's a question about whether or not those public servants were as such just serving their master and doing what they thought needed to be done or they were under massive pressure, so they were just trying to get it through. I think it's quite questionable, and I don't think we can draw any conclusions that they intentionally did that wrongdoing, but that's definitely up for question at the moment. So maybe just a suggestion, they told ministers what they knew ministers wanted to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the ombudsman, so the ombudsman, um, there was a lot of complaints to them about the scheme, and a lot of the material that was provided by these public servants was had stuff missing, wasn't completely, you know, um, factual. So there's also a little bit of question about whether or not there's a bit of cover-up going on as well by those public servants. So a lesson then from Australia for public servants here about, I guess, the need to provide completely independent advice to government? Yeah, so this tradition of free and frank advice, which I think there's been a lot of questions in Wellington about, you know, particularly over the last sort of five, six years, whether or not they're getting the free and frank advice up to ministers in the way it should be. And I think this is a reminder of the fact of the duties on public servants that regardless of the pressure you're coming under from Cabinet or from ministers, you still have a really strong duty on behalf of the public to provide that advice. I suppose it weighs up the issue around whether then public servants are stymieing the policy direction of a government for good reason or not, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. where you strike the balance? Yeah, I think there's some clear examples. So one of the examples from this report was that the lawyers from this particular department advised Cabinet that they didn't need to pass legislation to implement this scheme, when it was very clear actually they didn't have any powers to implement the scheme and legislation was necessary. So whilst that legislation would have been a massive delay to the scheme, as a lawyer, you've got a duty to make sure you're providing that legal advice in the best interests of the client, regardless of whether or not they want to hear it. Can you draw on any examples here, though? I mean, obviously not of the robo-debt sort of size, if you like, but can you draw on any examples here where you think maybe ministers haven't got free and frank advice on an issue? I think that's really hard to pin down because sometimes it's the absence of advice rather than what you see in you know documents that have been released. I think there's definitely been um, a lot of, uh, I'd say maybe quietening perhaps of some of that free and frank advice because people are more and more concerned about what goes out under OIA and ministers are much more concerned as well. So the question about whether or not sometimes that free and frank advice is being provided verbally rather than in writing to get around that, but also I think just really purely whether or not, it's really hard to tell whether or not there's that culture but I think the general feeling is, particularly over the last couple of years when we've had a lot of things done under urgency and a lot of things done quickly, that perhaps the robustness of the advice hadn't come through. I think, you know, sort of the top of my head, I think one of the examples perhaps was about our quarantine system. You know, there's been a lot of questions about whether or not that was legal or not and the kind of advice that was provided 
by public servants was sort of questioned or at least questioned or pressured by and reported back on the court by the court. So I think that's probably an example of where it's definitely not robo-debt, but some concerns about what that level of advice or the quality of that advice was. So do you think it's a good, be a good idea for the Public Service Commission at least to have a, a good look at this Royal Commission report and just draw some lessons here? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think there still has a long way to go. Obviously that report... Um, chapter that's got the referrals, you know, to the police, to the law society, or the equivalent of, um, and the various other sort of accountability bodies. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. There's also, interestingly, a possible class action um, regarding misfeasance in public office, which is quite a difficult thing to prove. I think those kind of lessons playing out would be really important that the Public Service Commissioner looks at those and makes sure that particularly senior public servants are aware of those really important duties because they could be personally liable. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. Thanks. As both the National and Labour parties struggle in polls, most commentators focus on leadership and political mishaps to explain the numbers. But NBR's political editor Brent Edwards thinks their policy agendas might also be a factor. He joins us now. So, Brent, new ideas seem few and far between. Yeah, look, I think for both the major parties... That's right, and I mean, I think, and I think that is one of the factors as to why um, they're struggling to get a level of support that they might expect or, or hope for. Um, you know, election camp, elections are meant to be a contest of ideas, but but really, so far, it's it it hasn't been between the two major parties, it, and it doesn't really look as though it'll be. I mean, it's, it's an argument between who can supposedly manage the economy and the country better through various crises rather than, you know, who's got a, a great set of policies and, and and perhaps new innovative policies to deal with some of the issues that the country's facing, particularly, you know, the old chestnut about, you know, how do you lift productivity and really get the economy growing in a sustainable way, not just based off the back of house price rises and, and increasing immigration. Mm. What impact might National and Labor's policies have on their popularity then? Well, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we we can see from, I think, the polls that, you know, and, and we're not just talking about one or, or two polls, a range of polls where both parties, you know, really stuck in the 30s, sometimes low to mid-30s. You know, National's obviously slightly ahead of Labor in, in the latest one news poll, um, but actually looking at a range of polls, still quite close between them and still quite close between centre-left block, if you like, and the centre-right block. But, um, but both parties, if you look at in in the last um, election in 2020, obviously Labor got its 50%, you know, unprecedented, but, but between them, the two major parties got over 75% of the vote. In the election before that, in 2017, the two major parties got over 80% of the um, vote. When you look at the polls that they, as they stand at the moment, if, if, if those polls are correct and the trends are right, then in this election, National and Labor combined are going to have a number somewhere in the 60s. Okay. So, um, so that means there's more votes available for the minor parties, ACT, the Green Party, Te Party Māori, um, New Zealand First, um, uh, the Opportunities Party. So, so it's going to be interesting to see how that that plays out. And and if you're talking about a contest of ideas, you probably see more of a contest of ideas, particularly with with ACT, the Greens, the Party Māori, and Top. You know, who all have policies. You know, people will agree or disagree with them, but that are a bit more bolder 
than the sorts of policies that the two major parties are putting in. Mm. So what opportunities does this give the likes of ACT and the Greens, etc.? Well, it, you know, it does. I mean, what I think, you know, again, you're seeing it. I mean, obviously the popularity is growing and, and it's amazing to think, for instance, the ACT party now is sort of, I think, um, on 12%. It's, I mean, it's already got a reasonable-sized caucus. Mm. Only two elections ago it got 0.5%, you know, back in 2017, and it almost looked as though that party was, was dead. Um, so it's come back um, from the ashes, even though its founder... So Roger Douglas has just said recently that he wouldn't vote for ACT now, but 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 you know the, but those parties, the Greens, the Party Māori, and and even top, and I mean you know, and one of the other things is that, that the individuals actually within both major parties, and you know, I've talked to a few ex-politicians who all quietly say that you know they don't see the depth of quality among either major party in terms of, and I think that's probably correct. And, you know, with some of the minor parties, you've got politicians who are perhaps, even, you know, have profiles that are higher than quite a few MPs on in either major party. Obviously not higher than the two leaders. But so, the, you know, that's interesting. Even Raf Manji, the, the um, leader of top, out of parliament, but actually still managing to get a bit of a profile and, and pushing. And I think top's getting some coverage because of its policy agenda. Um, so, you know, that, that's the interesting thing. I think that policies do matter. I mean, both the major parties, as I say, not particularly pushing any particularly bold or new policies. Um, if you look at their various slogans, you know, national, you know, get, get, get New Zealand back on track or on track to where, um, Labour, in it for you, in it for who, for what. I mean, mm. you know, so... Pretty vague stuff, actually. So for ACT, you're thinking their popularity rises because of their policy agenda, what they're proposing? Well, it's a bit of both. Both their policy agenda, I mean, clearly they're much clearer around tax, although, I mean, National has got its tax policy of raising tax thresholds, but it's quite a careful policy. Um, ACT Act would, would cut taxes more. Um, and, you know, and equally, obviously, on the other side, the Green Party mm, would, mm. you know, Prime Minister and Labour leader Chris Hipkins has ruled out capital gains, wealth tax, mm. etc. The Greens would do that. Top have got their tax switch policy, quite an innovative policy, um, quite different. Obviously, to Party Māori have been pushing really strongly Māori issues. So, and But all of them have kind of got a clear sort of niche, if you like, and and policies that they're pushing that that differ quite quite a lot from others. I mean, so so they'll have plenty of people who will really really dislike their policies. There's no doubt about that. Whereas I suppose what National and Labor seem to be trying to do is to make themselves as small a target as possible for the other side to have a whack at. And you know we're getting down into this kind of old argument about oh we can manage the economy better than them and you know, we're tougher or not on crime than them and it's. Um, doesn't make for a, a really great debate in a campaign around a debate around ideas. I mean, that might change over the next few weeks as policies come out, but at the moment, uh, not looking that great. So you're saying, is it a drab campaign? Well, I think at the moment it's pretty drab in that sense between the two mm. major parties. Um, you know, they all seem to be, they seem to be a bit too frightened to, you know, to kind of put a stake in the ground about, you know, putting in place a really strong policy, um, you know, a policy prescription that would be different and, and, and stuff that's just new, a bit more, you know... It, are, are they waiting for each other to trip up? Well, National hasn't had to wait because 
the government's tripped up so many times this year, it's hard to put a number on it now. Yeah, so, yeah. But I think, you know, from that National's point of view, they're probably thinking uh, the government faces tough times in terms of the economy. Mm. Inflation's still high. I know it's coming down, but it's still high. People have got probably more interest rate rises to come in terms of fixed rates, I mean, you know, rolling over. Um, and, you know, you've had a cascade of ministerial mishaps so that all plays into nationals hands and they might feel well that they don't have to do too much let let, let labor's problems i mean i sink labor itself um but on the basis of all that you would have expected actually that national would have been much further ahead of labor than it is on a on a just on a one party versus one party mm-hmm. basis two major parties but it's it's only you know as i say in that two points ahead in that um latest one Still news poll. so yeah. so they have to kind of worry about well you know what are they doing or not doing in terms of trying to garner sort of broader public support you know but if the polls are right and i've got that's the if but you know but the trends are there you know however the votes fall it's going to be clear that the minor parties are going to have a much more leverage in the next government than they have in the previous number of governments. You know, I suppose apart from New Zealand First had a real leverage in that 2017 mm. to 20 government, but if you think back to the national-led government and to this recent government, the minor parties have been, you know, side bits to that really. But um, whether it's ACT... Um, in a national-led government or whether it's the Green mm. Party and Te Party Māori in a Labour-led government, they're going to have a lot more leverage than they have previously. Watch this space, Brent Edwards. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.